Section 22 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. The Third Book the world as idea second aspect paragraphs thirty seven to thirty nine genius then consists according to our explanation in the capacity for knowing independently of the principle of sufficient reason not individual things which have their existence only in their relations but the ideas of such things and of being oneself the correlative of the idea and thus no longer an individual but the pure subject of knowledge yet this faculty must exist in all men in a smaller and different degree for if not they would be just as incapable of enjoying works of art as of producing them they would have no susceptibility for the beautiful or the sublime indeed these words could have no meaning for them we must therefore assume that there exists in all men this power of knowing the ideas in things and consequently of transcending their personality for the moment unless indeed there are some men who are capable of no aesthetic pleasure at all the man of genius excels ordinary men only by possessing this kind of knowledge in a far higher degree and more continuously thus while under its influence he retains the presence of mind which is necessary to enable him to repeat in a voluntary and intentional work what he has learned in this manner and this repetition is the work of art through this he communicates to others the idea he has grasped this idea remains unchanged and the same so that aesthetic pleasure is one and the same whether it is called forth by a work of art or directly by the contemplation of nature and life the work of art is only a means of facilitating the knowledge in which this pleasure consists that the idea comes to us more easily from the work of art than directly from nature and the real world arises from the fact that the artist who knew only the idea no longer the actual has reproduced in his work the pure idea has abstracted it from the actual omitting all disturbing accidents the artist lets us see the world through his eyes that he has these eyes that he knows of the inner nature of things apart from all their relations is the gift of genius is inborn but that he is able to lend us this gift to let us see with his eyes is acquired and is the technical side of art therefore after the account which i have given in the preceding pages of the inner nature of aesthetical knowledge in its most general outlines the following more exact philosophical treatment of the beautiful and the sublime will explain them both in nature and in art without separating them further first of all we shall consider what takes place in a man when he is affected by the beautiful and the sublime whether he derives this emotion directly from nature 
from life or partakes of it only through the medium of art does not make any essential but merely an external difference in the aesthetical mode of contemplation we have found two inseparable constituent parts the knowledge of the object not as individual thing but as platonic idea that is as the enduring form of this whole species of things and the self-consciousness of the knowing person not as individual but as pure will-less subject of knowledge the condition under which both these constituent parts appear always united was found to be the abandonment of the method of knowing which is bound to the principle of sufficient reason and which on the other hand is the only kind of knowledge that is of value for the service of the will and also for science moreover we shall see that the pleasure which is produced by the contemplation of the beautiful arises from these two constituent parts sometimes more from the one sometimes more from the other according to what the object of the aesthetical contemplation may be all willing arises from want therefore from deficiency and therefore from suffering the satisfaction of a wish ends it yet for one wish that is satisfied there remains at least ten which are denied further the desire lasts long the demands are infinite the satisfaction is short and scantily measured out but even the final satisfaction is itself only apparent every satisfied wish at once makes room for a new one both are illusions the one is known to be so the other not yet no attained object of desire can give lasting satisfaction but merely a fleeting gratification it is like the alms thrown to the beggar that keeps him alive today that his misery may be prolonged till the morrow therefore so long as our consciousness is filled by our will so long as we are given up to the throng of desires with their constant hopes and fears so long as we are the subject of willing we can never have lasting happiness nor peace it is essentially all the same whether we pursue or flee fear injury or seek enjoyment the care for the constant demands of the will in whatever form it may be continually occupies and sways the consciousness but without peace no true well-being is possible the subject of willing is thus constantly stretched on the revolving wheel of ixion pours water into the sieve of the danaiads is the ever-longing tantalus but when some external cause or inward disposition lifts us suddenly out of the endless stream of willing delivers knowledge from the slavery of the will the attention is no longer directed to the motives of willing but comprehends things free from their relation to the will and thus observes them without personal interest without subjectivity purely objectively gives itself entirely up to them so far as they are ideas but not in so far as they are motives then all at once the peace which we were always seeking but which always fled from us on the former path of the desires comes to us of its own accord and it is well with us it is the painless state which epicurus prized as the highest good and as the state of the gods for we are for the moment set free from the miserable striving of the will 
we keep the sabbath of the penal servitude of willing the wheel of ixion stands still but this is just the state which i described above as necessary for the knowledge of the idea as pure contemplation as sinking oneself in perception losing oneself in the object forgetting all individuality surrendering that kind of knowledge which follows the principle of sufficient reason and comprehends only relations the state by means of which at once and inseparably the perceived particular thing is raised to the idea of its whole species and the knowing individual to the pure subject of willless knowledge and as such they are both taken out of the stream of time and all other relations it is then all one whether we see the sun set from the prison or from the palace inward disposition the predominance of knowing over willing can produce the state under any circumstances this is shown by those admirable dutch artists who directed this purely objective perception to the most insignificant objects and established a lasting monument of their objectivity and spiritual peace in their pictures of still life which the aesthetic beholder does not look on without emotion for they present to him the peaceful still frame of mind of the artist free from will which was needed to contemplate such insignificant things so objectively to observe them so attentively and to repeat this perception so intelligently and as the picture enables the onlooker to participate in this state his emotion is often increased by the contrast between it and the unquiet frame of mind disturbed by vehement willing in which he finds himself in the same spirit landscape painters and particularly ruisdale have often painted very insignificant country scenes which produce the same effect even more agreeably all this is accomplished by the inner power of an artistic nature alone but that purely objective disposition is facilitated and assisted from without by suitable objects by the abundance of natural beauty which invites contemplation and even presses itself upon us whenever it discloses itself suddenly to our view it almost always succeeds in delivering us though it may be only for a moment from subjectivity from the slavery of the will and is raising us to the state of pure knowing this is why the man who is tormented by passion or want or care is so suddenly revived cheered and restored by a single free glance into nature the storm of passion the pressure of desire and fear and all the miseries of willing are then at once and in a marvellous manner calmed and appeased for at the moment at which freed from the will we give ourselves up to pure willless knowing we pass into a world from which everything is absent that influenced our will and moved us so violently through it this freeing of knowledge lifts us as wholly and entirely away from all that as do sleep and dreams happiness and unhappiness have disappeared we are no longer individual the individual is forgotten we are only pure subject of knowledge we are only that one eye of the world which looks out from all knowing creatures but which can become perfectly free 
from the service of will in man alone thus all difference of individuality so entirely disappears that it is all the same whether the perceiving eye belongs to a mighty king or to a wretched beggar for neither joy nor complaining can pass that boundary with us so near us always lies a sphere in which we escape from all our misery but who has the strength to continue long in it as soon as any single relation to our will to our person even of these objects of our pure contemplation comes again into consciousness the magic is at an end we fall back into the knowledge which is governed by the principle of sufficient reason we know no longer the idea but the particular thing the link of a chain to which we also belong and we are again abandoned to all our woe most men remain almost always at this standpoint because they entirely lack objectivity that is genius therefore they have no pleasure in being alone with nature they need company or at least a book for their knowledge remains subject to their will they seek therefore in objects only some relation to their will and whenever they see anything that has no such relation there sounds within them like a ground bass in music the constant inconsolable cry it is of no use to me thus in solitude the most beautiful surroundings have for them a desolate dark strange and hostile appearance lastly it is this blessedness of willless perception which casts an enchanting glamour over the past and distant and presents them to us in so fair a light by means of self-deception for as we think of days long gone by days in which we live in a distant place it is only the objects which our fancy recalls not the subject of will which bore about with it then its incurable sorrows just as it bears them now but they are forgotten because since then they have often given place to others now objective perception acts with regard to what is remembered just as it would in what is present if we let it have influence over us if we surrendered ourselves to it free from will hence it arises that especially when we are more than ordinarily disturbed by some want the remembrance of past and distant scenes suddenly flits across our minds like a lost paradise the fancy recalls only what was objective not what was individually subjective and we imagine that that objective stood before us then just as pure and undisturbed by any relation to the will as its image stands in our fancy now while in reality the relation of the objects to our will gave us pain then just as it does now we can deliver ourselves from all suffering just as well through present objects as through distant ones whenever we raise ourselves to a purely objective contemplation of them and so are able to bring about the illusion that only the objects are present and not we ourselves then as the pure subject of knowledge freed from the miserable self we become entirely one with these objects and for the moment our wants are as foreign to us 
as they are to them the world as idea alone remains and the world as will has disappeared in all these reflections it has been my object to bring out clearly the nature and the scope of the subjective element in aesthetic pleasure the deliverance of knowledge from the service of the will the forgetting of self as an individual and the raising of the consciousness to the pure willless timeless subject of knowledge independent of all relations with this subjective side of aesthetic contemplation there must always appear as its necessary correlative the objective side the intuitive comprehension of the platonic idea but before we turn to the closer consideration of this and to the achievements of art in relation to it it is better that we should pause for a little at the subjective side of aesthetic pleasure in order to complete our treatment of this by explaining the impression of the sublime which depends altogether upon it and arises from a modification of it after that we shall complete our investigation of aesthetic pleasure by considering its objective side but we must first add the following remarks to what has been said light is the pleasantest and most gladdening of things it has become the symbol of all that is good and salutary in all religions it symbolizes salvation while darkness symbolizes damnation ormuzd dwelled in the purest light ahrimanes in eternal light dante's paradise would look very much like vauxhall in london for all the blessed spirits appear as points of light and arrange themselves in regular figures the very absence of light makes us sad its return cheers us colors excite directly a keen delight which reaches its highest degree when they are transparent all this depends entirely upon the fact that light is a correlative and condition of the most perfect kind of knowledge of perception the only knowledge which does not in any way affect the will for sight unlike the affections of the other senses cannot in itself directly and through its sensuous effect make the sensation of the special organ agreeable or disagreeable that is it has no immediate connection with the will such a quality can only belong to the perception which arises in the understanding and then it lies in the relation of the object to the will in the case of hearing this is to some extent otherwise sounds can give pain directly and they may also be sensuously agreeable directly and without regard to harmony or melody touch as one with the feeling of the whole body is still more subordinated to this direct influence upon the will and yet there is such a thing as a sensation of touch which is neither painful nor pleasant but smells are always either agreeable or disagreeable and tastes still more thus the last two senses are most closely related to the will and therefore they are always the most ignoble and have been called by kant the subjective senses the pleasure which we experience from light is in fact only the pleasure which arises from the objective possibility of the purest and fullest perceptive knowledge and as such it may be traced to the fact that pure knowledge 
freed and delivered from all will is in the highest degree pleasant and of itself constitutes a large part of aesthetic enjoyment again we must refer to this view of light the incredible beauty which we associate with the reflection of objects in water that lightest quickest finest species of the action of bodies upon each other that to which we owe by far the completest and purest of our perceptions the action of reflected rays of light is here brought clearly before our eyes distinct and perfect in cause and in effect and indeed in its entirety hence the aesthetic delight it gives us which in the most important aspect is entirely based on the subjective ground of aesthetic pleasure and is delight in pure knowing and its method all these reflections are intended to bring out the subjective part of aesthetic pleasure that is to say that pleasure so far as it consists simply of delight in perceptive knowledge as such in opposition to will and as directly connected with this there naturally follows the explanation of that disposition or frame of mind which has been called the sense of the sublime we have already remarked above that the transition to the state of pure perception takes place most easily when the objects bend themselves to it that is when by their manifold and yet definite and distinct form they easily become representatives of their ideas in which beauty in the objective sense consists this quality belongs preeminently to natural beauty which thus affords even to the most insensible at least a fleeting aesthetic satisfaction indeed it is so remarkable how especially the vegetable world invites aesthetic observation and as it were presses itself upon it that one might say that these advances are connected with the fact that these organisms unlike the bodies of animals are not themselves immediate objects of knowledge and therefore require the assistance of a foreign intelligent individual in order to rise out of the world of blind will and enter the world of idea and that thus they long as it were for this entrance that they may attain at least indirectly what is denied them directly but i leave this suggestion which i have hazarded and which borders perhaps upon extravagance entirely undecided for only a very intimate and devoted consideration of nature can raise or justify it as long as that which raises us from the knowledge of mere relations subject to the will to aesthetic contemplation and thereby exalts us to the position of the subject of knowledge free from will is this fittingness of nature the significance and distinctness of its forms on account of which the ideas individualized in them readily present themselves to us so long it is merely beauty that affects us and the sense of the beautiful that is excited but if these very objects whose significant forms invite us to pure contemplation have a hostile relation to the human will in general as it exhibits itself in its objectivity the human body if they are opposed to it so that it is menaced by the irresistible predominance of their power 
or sinks into insignificance before their immeasurable greatness if nevertheless the beholder does not direct his attention to this eminently hostile relation to his will but also perceiving and recognizing it turns consciously away from it forcibly detaches himself from his will and its relations and giving himself up entirely to knowledge quietly contemplates those very objects that are so terrible to the will comprehends only their idea which is foreign to all relation so that he lingers gladly over its contemplation and is thereby raised above himself his person his will and all will in that case he is filled with the sense of the sublime he is in the state of spiritual exaltation and therefore the object producing such a state is called sublime thus what distinguishes the sense of the sublime from that of the beautiful is this in the case of the beautiful pure knowledge has gained the upper hand without a struggle for the beauty of the object that is that property which facilitates the knowledge of its idea has removed from consciousness without resistance and therefore imperceptibly the will and the knowledge of relations which is subject to it so that what is left is the pure subject of knowledge without even a remembrance of will on the other hand in the case of the sublime that state of pure knowledge is only attained by a conscious and forcible breaking away from the relations of the same object to the will which are recognized as unfavorable by a free and conscious transcending of the will and the knowledge related to it this exaltation must not only be consciously won but also consciously retained and it is therefore accompanied by a constant remembrance of will yet not of a single particular volition such as fear or desire but of human volition in general so far as it is universally expressed in its objectivity the human body if a single real act of will were to come into consciousness through actual personal pressure and danger from the object then the individual will thus actually influenced would at once gain the upper hand the peace of contemplation would become impossible the impression of the sublime would be lost because it yields to the anxiety in which the effort of the individual to write itself has sunk every other thought a few examples will help very much to elucidate this theory of the aesthetic sublime and remove all doubt with regard to it at the same time they will bring out the different degrees of this sense of the sublime it is in the main identical with that of the beautiful with pure willless knowing and the knowledge that necessarily accompanies it of ideas out of all relation determined by the principle of sufficient reason and it is distinguished from the sense of the beautiful only by the additional quality that it rises above the known hostile relation of the object contemplated to the will in general thus there come to be various degrees of the sublime and transitions from the beautiful to the sublime 
according as this additional quality is strong, bold, urgent, near or weak, distant and merely indicated. I think it is more in keeping with the plan of my treatise, first to give examples of these transitions and of the weaker degrees of the impression of the sublime, although persons whose aesthetical susceptibility in general is not very great and whose imagination is not very lively will only understand the examples given later of the higher and more distinct grades of that impression and they should therefore confine themselves to these and pass over the examples of the weak degrees of the sublime that are to be given first as man is at once impetuous and blind striving of will whose pole or focus lies in the genital organs, an eternal, free, serene subject of pure knowledge, whose pole is the brain. So, corresponding to this antithesis, the sun is both the source of light, the condition of the most perfect kind of knowledge, and therefore of the most delightful of things, and the source of warmth. The first condition of life, that is, of all phenomena of will, in its higher grades therefore what warmth is for the will light is for knowledge light is the largest gem in the crown of beauty and has the most marked influence on the knowledge of every beautiful object its presence is an indispensable condition of beauty its favorable disposition increases the beauty of the most beautiful Architectural beauty, more than any other object, is enhanced by favorable light, though even the most insignificant things become, through its influence, most beautiful. If in the dead of winter, when all nature is frozen and stiff, we see the rays of the setting sun reflected by masses of stone, illuminating without warming, and thus favorable only to the purest kind of knowledge, not to the will the contemplation of the beautiful effect of the light upon these masses lifts us as does all beauty into a state of pure knowing but in this case a certain transcending of the interests of the will is needed to enable us to rise into the state of pure knowing because there is a faint recollection of the lack of warmth from these rays that is an absence of the principle of life. There is a slight challenge to persist in pure knowing and to refrain from all willing, and therefore it is an example of a transition from the sense of the beautiful to that of the sublime. It is the faintest trace of the sublime in the beautiful, and beauty itself is indeed present only in a slight degree. The following is almost as weak an example. Let us imagine ourselves transported to a very lonely place with unbroken horizon, under a cloudless sky, trees and plants in the perfectly motionless air, no animals, no men, no running water, the deepest silence. Such surroundings are, as it were, a call to seriousness and contemplation, apart from all will and its cravings. But this is just what imparts to such a scene of desolate stillness a touch of the sublime. For because it affords no object, 
either favourable or unfavourable, for the will which is constantly in need of striving and attaining, there only remains the state of pure contemplation, and whoever is incapable of this is ignominiously abandoned to the vacancy of unoccupied will and the misery of ennui. So far it is a test of our intellectual worth, of which, generally speaking, the degree of our power of enduring solitude, or our love of it, is a good criterion. The scene we have sketched affords us, then, an example of the sublime in a low degree, for in it, with a state of pure knowing in its peace and all-sufficiency, there is mingled, by way of contrast, the recollection of the dependence and poverty of the will which stands in need of constant action. This is a species of the sublime, for which the site of the boundless prairies of the interior of North America is celebrated. But let us suppose such a scene stripped also of vegetation and showing only naked rocks. Then, from the entire absence of that organic life, which is necessary for existence, the will at once becomes uneasy, the desert assumes a terrible aspect, our mood becomes more tragic. The elevation to the sphere of pure knowing takes place with a more decided tearing of ourselves away from the interests of the will, and because we persist in continuing in the state of pure knowing, the sense of the sublime distinctly appears. The following situation may occasion this feeling in a still higher degree. Nature convulsed by a storm, the sky darkened by black threatening thunderclouds, stupendous naked overhanging cliffs completely shutting out the view, rushing foaming torrents, absolute desert, the wail of the wind sweeping through the clefts of the rock, our dependence, our strife with hostile nature, our will broken in the conflict now appears visibly before our eyes. Yet so long as the personal pressure does not gain the upper hand, but we continue in aesthetic contemplation, the pure subject of knowing gazes, unshaken and unconcerned, through that strife of nature, through that picture of the broken will, and quietly comprehends the ideas, even of those objects, which are threatening and terrible to the will. In this contrast lies the sense of the sublime. But the impression becomes still stronger. If, when we have before our eyes, on a large scale, the battle of the raging elements, in such a scene we are prevented from hearing the sound of our own voice by the noise of a falling stream, or if we are abroad in the storm of tempestuous seas, where the mountainous waves rise and fall, dash themselves furiously against steep cliffs, and toss their spray high into the air. The storm howls, the sea boils, the lightning flashes from black clouds, and the peals of thunder drown the voice of storm and sea. Then, in the undismayed beholder, the twofold nature of his consciousness reaches the highest degree of distinctness. He perceives himself, on the one hand, as an individual, as a frail phenomenon of will, which the slightest touch of these forces can utterly destroy, helpless against a powerful nature, dependent, 
the victim of chance, a vanishing nothing in the presence of stupendous might. And, on the other hand, as the eternal, peaceful, knowing subject, the condition of the object, and therefore the supporter of this whole world, the terrific strife of nature, only his idea, the subject itself free and apart from all desires and necessities, in the quiet comprehension of the ideas. This is the complete impression of the sublime. Here he obtains a glimpse of a power beyond all comparison, superior to the individual, threatening it with annihilation. The impression of the sublime may be produced in quite another way, by presenting a mere immensity in space and time. Its immeasurable greatness dwindles the individual to nothing. Adhering to Kant's nomenclature and his accurate division, we may call the first kind the dynamical and the second the mathematical sublime, although we entirely dissent from his explanation of the inner nature of the impression and can allow no share in it either to moral reflections or to the hypostasis from scholastic philosophy. If we lose ourselves in the contemplation of the infinite greatness of the universe in time and space, meditate on the thousands of years that are past or to come, or if the heavens at night actually bring before our eyes innumerable worlds, and so force upon our consciousness the immensity of the universe, we feel ourselves dwindle to nothing, as individuals, as living bodies, as transient phenomena of will, we feel ourselves pass away and vanish into nothing like drops in the ocean. But at once there rises against this ghost of our own nothingness, against such lying impossibility, the immediate consciousness that all these worlds exist only as our idea, only as modifications of the eternal subject of pure knowing which we find ourselves to be as soon as we forget our individuality, and which is the necessary supporter of all worlds and all times the condition of their possibility. The vastness of the world which disquieted us before rests now in us. Our dependence upon it is annulled by its dependence upon us. All this, however, does not come at once into reflection, but shows itself merely as the felt consciousness that in some sense or other, which philosophy alone can explain, we are one with the world, and therefore not oppressed, but exalted by its immensity. It is the felt consciousness of this that the Upanishads of the Vedas repeatedly express in such a multitude of different ways. Very admirably in the saying already quoted, Oi omnis creturae in totum ego sum, et proeter mi aliud ens non est. Obnechat, Volume 1, page 122. It is the transcending of our own individuality, the sense of the sublime. We receive this impression of the mathematical sublime quite directly by means of a space which is small indeed as compared with the world but which has become directly perceptible to us and affects us with its whole extent in all its three dimensions. 
so as to make our own body seem almost infinitely small an empty space can never be thus perceived and therefore never an open space but only space that is directly perceptible in all its dimensions by means of the limits which enclose it thus for example a very high vast dome like that of st peter's at rome or st paul's in london the sense of the sublime here rises through the consciousness of the vanishing nothingness of our own body in the presence of a vastness which from another point of view itself exists only in our idea and of which we are as knowing subject the supporter thus here as everywhere it arises from the contrast between the insignificance and dependence of ourselves as individuals as phenomena of will and the consciousness of ourselves as pure subject of knowing even the vault of the starry heaven produces this if it is contemplated without a reflection but just in the same way as the vault of stone and only by its apparent not its real extent some objects of our perception excite in us the feeling of the sublime because not only on account of their spatial vastness but also of their great age that is their temporal duration we feel ourselves dwarfed to insignificance in their presence and yet revel in the pleasure of contemplating them of this kind are very high mountains the egyptian pyramids and colossal ruins of great antiquity our explanation of the sublime applies also to the ethical to what is called the sublime character such a character arises from this that the will is not excited by objects which are well calculated to excite it but that knowledge retains the upper hand in their presence a man of sublime character will accordingly consider men in a purely objective way and not with reference to the relations which they might have to his will he will for example observe their faults even their hatred and injustice to himself without being himself excited to hatred he will behold their happiness without envy he will recognize their good qualities without desiring any closer relations with them he will perceive the beauty of women but he will not desire them his personal happiness or unhappiness will not greatly affect him he will rather be as hamlet describes horatio for thou hast been as one in suffering all that suffers nothing a man that fortunes buffets and rewards hast taken with equal thanks etc act three scene two for in the course of his own life and its misfortunes he will consider less his individual lot than that of humanity in general and will therefore conduct himself in its regard rather as knowing than as suffering end of section twenty two read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama